many people today struggle with sharing the gospel because they're really struggling with the response that they may get from the hearer. Uh, what if they reject me? What if they persecute me? What if they refuse to hear me? What if they gossip about me after I walk away or they slander me? And this has been the most uh, offensive move by Satan at hindering the spread of the gospel. Uh, and it's so easy for him because he presses in on our self-love that's just naturally born in us. You don't have to teach a young child to have, have self-love. Uh, if you have children, you've been around children, you don't have to teach them that they want the biggest or that they don't want to share uh, their toys. Uh, the natural inclination of man is to, to, to want to gratify the desires of the flesh. Actually, Galatians teaches us that as believers, as followers of Christ, we're supposed to fight against that. Galatians 5.16 says this, But if I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we want to live by the Spirit, we must walk by the Spirit. Our fleshly desires of comfort and pleasure will melt away as the power of the Holy Spirit works within us, as He works in us and through us. And it's through this empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we're able to really make an impact for the kingdom of God. So let's go ahead and pray and get into, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 if you want to turn to your Bibles as well. Uh, we'll be through 1 through 16. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for allowing us to study it. I thank you for, for giving us the whole counsel that we're supposed to have. From Genesis to Revelation, you've given us 66 books to be able to read and learn about what you, what you love and what you hate, uh, who you want us to be. God, we can learn so much from it. And so, God, I just pray that you use your word to sanctify us through the Holy Spirit, that you change us from the inside out, and that we grow in our knowledge of you today. Lord, I know that we all come with, with things in our life that can, we can be thinking about, things that happened this past week, things that are coming up this week. I know we're excited about Thanksgiving. We have a lot to be thankful for, but God, may we think, be thankful the most right now for your word and for salvation, and may you help us to um, focus in on it today. We love you, Lord. Amen. So today we're going to see three ways the disciples who are sent out make an impact for the kingdom of God. The first is, sent out disciples prepare the way for Christ. They prepare the way for Christ. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1 here. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he, he himself was about to go. So we see Jesus sends out these 72 followers, two by two, into all these different towns. Uh, likely 36-ish groups of people. And these followers were to go into every town that he was about to go into. Then they were to prepare the way of the Lord. It should be noted that some versions that you may be reading may say 70 instead of 72. There's a textual variant and some debate there. Not a really a matter of great importance, whether they're 35 groups or 36. Um, uh, some seem to really lean towards 70 because of Exodus 24, Numbers 11, 16, 70 elders, that kind of thing. Um, but we're, we're told here why Jesus sent them out. So why are these these followers being sent out, and they're there to prepare the way of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? We've been studying through Luke. Remember earlier in Luke, who was sent out to prepare the way before the Lord? John the Baptist. We're awake this morning. That's good. So John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 3, we see this as well. Uh, he quotes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3. Uh, Matthew 3, 3 says this, for, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So these followers were, as John the Baptist prepared the way of the coming of Christ, 
These followers were to go into these towns and prepare the way for Christ to literally come to those towns after them. But why does he send them into groups of two? Uh, and if we look at the scriptures, we can actually see, because we see in Luke 9, when he sent out the 12 apostles, he did the same thing. They went two by two. And there's at least two good reasons. There's probably a lot more than that, but two really good reasons that I could see here that he sends them out two by two. Number one, mutual support. Number one, mutual support. And number two, a legal requirement. So a mutual support and a legal requirement. By mutual support, we see that the two were able to spur one another moving forward. They were there to be able to aid one another in physical, uh, emotional, and spiritual safety as well. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, asserts this in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but can, how can one keep warm alone? And, uh, and though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So the two, along with the Holy Spirit, were going out and forming that threefold cord moving forward as they prepared the way of Christ. Second, we see the legal requirement. You're like, what do you mean by the, the legal requirement? Well, we're going to see here in a little while that these people were given the ability to be able to cast and pronounce judgments upon these towns that refused to respond to the gospel. And in Deuteronomy 19.15, we see this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So we see that they now had two that could pronounce this judgment. We can also take a couple of important, important notes ourselves as we look at this, as we prepare as followers as well. So number one, we need to be sure that we are doing ministry together. We're going to see this in a little while. When you're, when you're not doing ministry together, you're, you're open to more temptation, open to more problems. Uh, the Christian life is not a solo life. We're to be doing it as a family of believers. It's actually part of our mission statement, a family of believers, disciple to make disciples, because we know that we're better together than apart. We're able to, if one of us falls, we can pick the other one up. You know, it's really important. Number two, we must realize that our goal is to prepare the way for Jesus, not for ourselves, not for our church, not for our agenda. We're to prepare the way for the Lord. And by that, we don't save anyone. And that's actually a really big blessing. Someone's salvation is not actually dependent on you. Now, we need to share the gospel. We're to prepare the way for Christ, but we actually don't save anyone. Christ saves them as we share the gospel. He does his saving work in their lives. All authority and power are from him, not from us. We're only vessels he chooses to use. So thus far, we've seen Jesus send this, this, these pairs of disciples into the, into the world to prepare the way for him. And we are also sent out to prepare the way before the Lord as well. May we, may we remember that. Be sure that you are preparing the way well. Next, we see number two, sent out disciples pursue the will of Christ. Sent out disciples pursue the will of Christ. So let's read verse Two, uh, and he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, into his harvest. So Jesus asserts that the harvest is plentiful. We've talked about this a few times in the past. We actually talked about this even when we launched. It was one of the early things we kind of hit uh, before we even, uh, before we launched as a church, um, even before then. And we, we prayed that that the harvest would be plentiful and that, the, that we'd have plenty of, 
of laborers as well. So this is a huge prayer of mine, church. I, I pray that we have more and more people that lock arms with us and go into our communities and share the gospel, uh, that we see souls saved. Uh, sadly, I can't tell you how many times I've shared the gospel with people that have gone to church for a while or they sporadically go to church and they really don't understand the gospel. Uh, they, they've, they, they just can't articulate it well. And sadly, we live in a world where not only can people in our churches struggle to share the gospel and understand the gospel, but a lot of our pastors can't share the gospel in a clear and articulate manner, or they at least refuse to do so. Uh, and so they can't articulate the need for humility and admitting that one is not good. How many people do you ask, do you feel like you're a good person? How many people say yes? Very, very frequently. But if we know the Bible, Romans 3, no one is good, not even one. And we can't be saved if we think we're good because we don't need God if we're good. God is good. We do need him because we are not. They don't understand the need for repentance, meaning you have to turn away from your sin. You can't just give God a head nod and say, okay, yeah, I realize I'm a bad person. I'm not doing what's right, but you know what? I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do, but I'm, I believe in you. That's not how salvation works either. Uh, they don't understand that the finished work was done on the, on, on the cross and that we don't bring anything to the table, uh, that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith, and that works are a sign that we're saved, not something that earns us salvation. And they truly, at research after research, study after study, says that they don't understand the exclusivity of the gospel, which we mention a lot in John 14, 6. He is the only way, right? And most in our world and our nation do not understand that. Brothers and sisters, we need more laborers sharing the, the good news with others and sharing it accurately and truthfully. It reminds me of the Pharisees who went out and shared their legalism and what they wanted to. And, and what did Jesus say? You turn them twice a, tw into twice a child of hell as you yourselves. And we have many out there that are false teachers doing the same, turning people into twice a child of hell as themselves as they deceive them and keep them from the truth, from hearing the actual truth. I just pray that we have more people that lock arms with us and share the gospel. Next comes the stark and practical warning from Jesus as we go to verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. These followers are being sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is not an easy road, my friends. If you are a believer and you're going to share the gospel, there will be opposition. And how is this opposition described? Well, you can see the picture up here. Go ahead and go to the next one. It, this metaphor of Satan is quite a scary metaphor. It's very graphic and detailed. This is Satan and his demons on earth, and this is how that they work. You see, wolves, if you've ever studied about wolves, many of you maybe have, uh, they're incredible hunters. And if you watch them, they know exactly when to attack. They, they oftentimes will stalk their prey for days before ever making an attack. And what they do is they look for the ones with weaknesses. They continue to watch the pack, watch the pack of sheep, and they continue to stay back waiting for the opportunity to open. And when it does, when that weak one straggles off just a little bit, they pounce and they attack. They wait for just the right conditions. We must know our enemies well, my friends. And our enemy knows us well, so we must be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, as we see in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. My friends, sometimes we can be so simple, and we can, we, we are to know how the world works. We're to, how to know, we're to know how Satan works. We need to set safeguards in our life to try to keep us from going out of bounds. We need to have accountability in our lives, and we need to be doing life together in a pack and keeping 
helping those who are weaker, grabbing them and saying, hey, how can we help you to grow? And we need to be willing, if we are the weaker one, to grow and to accept that healing balm that is offered. My friends, our world is no better today than it was in Jesus' time. We need to be innocent yet shrewd. Continuing his practical advice as they go out, he focuses in on relying on the Lord's provision. Let's look at Luke 10, 4 through 6. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So they were to take nothing extra, no extra money, no spare sandals, no traveling bed. Like the 12 apostles, remember when they were sent out not to take anything extra, they would be provided for. They were to fully rely on the Lord's provision. And my friends, as we do life, do we really believe that God is our provider? You know, yes, uh, God doesn't always um, ask us and very, very rarely just says, hey, just go out don't take anything with you and go serve. Uh, Oftentimes, God does tell us to take things with us. We'll see that in the future that God does. But as we go, do we we trust him to be our provider? A lot of times he has us maybe prepare some things, but he's not going to give us everything that we need until we actually go. Are we willing to trust him in that way? I pray that we do. Getting back to our scripture, uh, he says, um, don't greet anyone along the road. Well, how rude is that? Don't greet anyone along the road. Well, this wasn't saying you can't say hello. You can't give them a head nod. But back then, if you, if you know, greetings as they came along the road were, were super formalized, and it took sometimes hours to be able to formally greet someone and that kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, you've got a mission. You've got a mission you need to do. We're not going to be just hanging out, uh, wasting our time. We've got to make sure that we stay focused. Upon arriving at that destination, they were enter the house. Enter the house is led by the Holy Spirit, and they were to seek to see if the house was a house of peace. This was not referring to the physical dwelling or the structure, if it was a peaceful dwelling. It was actually talking about the household inside. And what that meant was, are they open to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? As, as they came into these homes two by two, and they went in, and they would preach the gospel, speak the gospel, and if peace came upon, meaning the Holy Spirit, you know, obviously, was, was, was confirming these people were okay, they were for them, not against them, then they were to stay. And if not, they were to leave the house. This peace that they brought was peace from God. We see in Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to get peace with God, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that we can have peace. So these pairs came with a very important message, the message of the gospel, that that the, the Messiah was about to come through. And we bring this message as well, even more uh, authoritative. Uh, the Holy Spirit not only can confirm it now, he has, Jesus has died on the cross and rose from the dead. We proclaim the message of the gospel, and it is the only message that can bring others peace. The gospel is it. There's, people in our world are looking for peace. They look at Israel and Hamas, and they look at, at Russia and Ukraine, and they look at our world, and they're like, why is there no peace? Why can't I sleep at night? Why am I so worried about this? What about my 401k? What about, there's all these things we can worry about. What about my children? What's the world going to be like when they grow up? They, well, the only thing that brings us peace is the gospel, because it gives us assurance that Christ is in control, that he's coming back, that, that we have heaven to look forward to. And even though it seems like there's no peace on earth, as we prepare for Christmas, we know peace did come. The Prince of Peace, the one who can give us peace. Upon arriving their destination, Jesus gives them this other command here as well in, in verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, 
for the laborer deserves his wages do not go from house to house. So they were supposed to remain in the same house, and, this remind, and they were also supposed to be supported by those in the home. They have shared the gospel with these people, and now they should be provided for by these people. Galatians 6.6, 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Those who preach the gospel should be cared for by those in whom they serve. This is very important as the church. We need to support our missionaries and our pastors and those that are serving. Just as Jesus had told his 12 disciples who were sent out, they were also to stay in the same house. They weren't to look for greener pastures and, you know, this guy's serving some better food over here. Let's go over to that guy's house. He's got a bigger yard. You know, they were to stay where the peace had fallen. His final instructions in this section, we see in 8 and 9, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So whenever they are in a town, they're received in peace, they're to eat what is set before them. They're not to be picky, not to say, oh, no, you know, I don't eat that. I prefer this, I prefer that. They should not complain and be self-seeking, but appreciate the food that is prepared before them. I'm sure there are some parents in the room wanting to apply this verse to their home right now. They should eat what is served before them, right, and be appreciative. My kids do pretty well with that, so that's good. Uh, I think Mike could get a couple amens from some parents. And, and finally, Jesus commands them to perform miracles in confirmation of their coming. Um, and they're to pro- proclaim that the kingdom of God has come. And here we see God working miracles even through those who aren't the 12 apostles. The kingdom of God had indeed already come with the coming of the Messiah. Obviously, we know that it will be fully consummated at the second coming when he comes and he reigns with his people forever. And we are to look forward to that day, the day of the Lord. We see it throughout the Old Testament multiple times. We see it in the New Testament as well. The coming day of the Lord, which is a day that we look forward to. But it is a dark day for those who are not in Christ. And so as the day of the Lord becomes closer and closer, we know it's closer today than it was yesterday. We don't know when it's coming, but we know Jesus is coming back. The day of the Lord is coming, a time of judgment on the lost, a time of blessing for those who are saved. We rejoice as we think about the day of the Lord coming, but may we share the gospel because so many will suffer eternity in hell if they have not come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So we've seen we should prepare the way for Christ by preaching the gospel. We should pursue the will of Christ as we do that the way he calls us to do it. And finally, that brings us to the last point. We should also, in light of the day of the Lord coming, we should preach a warning from Christ. We should preach a warning from Christ. I'm going to read verses uh, 10 through 12 now. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So if they enter this town, they've proclaimed the kingdom of God is near. They, remember, they did that for those towns that accepted the message as well. But they also to do that for those that don't, because the kingdom of God has come near, whether they like it or not, is what he's saying. Either way, the kingdom of God has come near, and they're to express their disgust by wiping the dust off their feet. If you remember right, the last time we saw the apostles go out, they were to shake the dust. Now we see an even more graphic. It's a, a wiping of the dust and saying, I don't even want even one speck of this town's dust on my feet. It signifies their displeasure and Jesus' displeasure. Jesus drives this point even more, even home harder in verse 12. He issues a grim warning 
in the cases of those who reject the gospel. He says that it will be more bearable for Sodom than for the town that does not receive his followers he's sending out right then. That's a pretty, pretty tough statement. I mean, I'm sure most of us have, have read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Genesis 19, 24 through 28. The Lord rains down fire and sulfur, kills every single person in both of those towns, except for righteous Lot and his daughters. His wife turns into a pillar of salt. She didn't make it quite out of there. Um, but we see that that happened because of the grievous sin of their sexual perversion, homosexuality in Jude 7. Why would this judgment be even worse on these towns? I mean, these towns couldn't have been as bad as Sodom, right? I mean, Sodom, literally every single male in that city wanted to lay with the angel sent from God. Every, it says every man. Wow, I mean, how can these cities be any worse than that? These Jewish cities, how, and some Samaritan city, but a lot of Jewish cities, how can they be worse than that? Well, Jesus wants them to know that they have, Sodom hadn't heard the gospel. Yes, they knew that God was, was there, but, but these cities are going to be, are going to hear, hey, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus is coming. Your Messiah is coming. And they're rejecting the Son of God. And yes, that judgment of rejecting the gospel is worse than the judgment upon the sexual perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah. How scary is that, my friends? If someone's sitting here and they've heard the gospel and they've come in and they've heard the gospel preached and they continually reject it, their judgment will be worse than Sodom. Wow. I mean, that is just mind-blowing to me. And he's not done yet. He gets a little bit more graphic here. Luke 10, 13 and 14. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are Gentile pagan areas, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Wow. Continues to discuss those who refuse to, to hear the gospel. He says, Woe to you, which is a verdict of judgment pronounced ahead of time, but expresses deep sorrow. This is not... God not caring. This is God. We talked about this actually on Thursday. This is God brokenhearted. Being like, but it is a judgment. It is a verdict of judgment that is coming on those cities that refuse to repent. But it is an expression of deep regret and sadness that God must judge and punish these nations. These first two are directed at at Chorazin and Bethsaida. And and there's a map here, if you look here, these these two towns were, were fairly close uh, there's Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum had become the ministry hub of Jesus after getting thrown out, almost killed from Nazareth. Uh, so, so Jesus goes from Nazareth, which is down here, up to Capernaum. That's where he does most of his ministry. And Chorazin and Bethsaida, uh, and we actually tire up top. We'll talk about that. We've already mentioned it a little bit. That's up, up to the, the uh, northwest. Um, but we see, we see him do a lot in, in these areas, and, and, and we're actually not aware of everything that he did in Chorazin and Bethsaida. We're actually not told of any miracles in Chorazin, so that's pretty, pretty neat to think about all these things we're going to hear in heaven that God did. Actually, the book of John at the end, John 21, 25, says this, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You excited to hear about what Jesus did in these other towns? What he did when he was on earth? Like it says, all the books, uh, the whole world could not contain all the wonderful things that Jesus did. Super excited about hearing about that. But getting back to this, Jesus charges that if, if the works done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in these pagan nations or pagan towns of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. 
That's, that's pretty amazing, because obviously we've already mentioned Tyre and Sidon were not Jewish areas. They were actually pagan areas, and if you remember the Old Testament, they weren't only bad, they were the, the actually the birthplace of probably the worst person in the Bible that I can think of, Jezebel. I mean, good grief, you read about her. I mean, she's a scary lady. Um, so 1 Kings 16.31 lets us know that she was born in the area of Tyre and Sidon. That's where she came from. And now we're told that the judgment will be more bearable on the pagans in that area than it'll be on these areas, these Jewish areas that reject the gospel. We mentioned this in passing before, but here we see levels of judgment in hell. Those who refuse to, to respond to the gospel are judged more harshly than those who've never heard it. And those who twist the gospel, we see in the book of Jude and also 2 Peter 2, those who refuse to respond to the gospel actually are judged even harsher than that. Then let me be clear, the Bible's clear that those who are not in Christ will all suffer in hell, but it will be unbearable for all, but it will be even more unbearable for those who reject Jesus directly after hearing the gospel. Then finally, Jesus addresses Capernaum, his hub of ministry in Galilee. And this is a super surprising verse after you read through Luke and you're like, man, you see Capernaum, 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 it keeps coming up over and over and over again. Like it must be an okay city, right? You know, Jesus spent a lot of time there. It was where his hub for Galilean ministry, most of his ministry was spent there. And he says this in 10:15, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven or exalted to heaven? I'm sure they were thinking, yeah, we were, we were nice to you. We didn't throw you out. We, we didn't try to kill you like Nazareth did, right? I mean, that should have been okay. He says, you shall be brought down to Hades. That's, another, that's a holding place for people that are going to hell. It's a pretty, pretty tough thing. So after addressing the neighboring towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida, he turns and addresses Capernaum, his ministry hub. And this city was not overtly hostile to Jesus, but what we see is it also wasn't welcoming either. They weren't accepting of his message. They may have tolerated him, but they didn't accept that he was the Messiah. And this city was so pivotal in the life of Jesus that Matthew, actually in Matthew 9-1, calls it Jesus's own city. That's how it was referred to. It was like his, his new hometown. It wasn't Nazareth. Nazareth was his own city. It was Capernaum, his own city. Yet here we see that although there was not much overt persecute, persecution in Jesus, to Jesus and his followers in Capernaum, there was also not support. And it's here we also see that in, indifference to the Savior is just as damning as overt persecution. Indifference is just as bad. Today we see many who are indifferent to the gospel. Sometimes I think those who are indifferent to the gospel are much harder to reach than those who are overtly persecuting the gospel. I've seen more people come to Christ after hating him than tolerating him. Those that come and they sit and they come you know, here and there and they do that. And oh yeah, they give their head nod. They're so much harder to reach. I always argue and say that maybe they've been immunized to the gospel. They've gotten just enough to where they don't understand the truth of God's word. And yet in America, it's pretty common for that pretty common for, for people to just give a head nod. Obviously, in the world, we see overt persecution. We see it in America, too. But a lot just kind of go, go, go with the flow. And many even in churches do life this way. They're indifferent to the Lord. Uh, they put their time in going to church here and there, they live, but they live their lives like God doesn't really exist. Their, their lives speak volumes a lot more than their random church attendance. They live their lives like there is no real eternity, like there's no true God that will truly judge them, like there's no gospel that needs to go out to the nations. My friends, is, is that you? Do you live your life as a functional atheist? Like, what do you mean by that, a functional atheist? 
Like, I believe there's a God. I'm not saying you, de- you deny the existence of God. I'm not saying you don't even believe that Jesus truly lived 2,000 years ago, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead three days later. I'm not saying that, but if, but if, 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 I were, if someone were to look at your everyday life, would they see, would they have any clue that you were a follower of Jesus? Not just your random church attendance. But would there be evidence of salvation? Do you look any different than the atheist down your street? Is your financial spending the same as them? Do you give as much to the cause of Christ and his church than the atheist down the street? Is your time management the same? Uh, Do you read your Bible as much as the atheist does? Sometimes I think atheists know their Bible better than some Christians or people that say they're Christians because they want to prove it wrong, right? Are are your entertainment choices the same? Uh, Are you sitting beside that atheist in that movie that is not appropriate for a believer to watch? My friends, take heed of Christ's warning here and spread it to those who may not be true followers of Jesus. Just because you've grown up in a Christian home that, that accepted Christianity and has been involved in the church does not mean that you are saved. Those who are not true followers of Christ will be brought down into Hades like Capernaum was. They will suffer eternal punishment in a literal place called hell. I pray that as you hear that, that doesn't make you think of yourself. You don't start thinking, am I a functional atheist? Do I, do I believe all these things, but I, I function like an atheist? Is there really any difference there? I, I pray that you don't let another moment go by. I pray that you repent of your sins and trust Jesus. He will save you from your sins. But only those who humble themselves and admit they're a sinner, admit that this is their problem, can be saved. For us who are saved, I pray that you are being sanctified by Christ, that you are growing. I, I pray that you are living boldly for him, and I pray that there is so much evidence that you've committed treason against the little g-god of this world. I, I, I pray that, that, that Satan and his demons could find plenty of evidence when they look at your home, when they look at your life, when they watch your time management, when they look at how you love your wife or you love your kids or you love your husband or you love your parents or you love, love even your enemies, right? I pray that there's plenty of evidence that you are a born-again believer. And I pray that we are guilty for being unapologetically dedicated to Christ and his cause. And may we spread the gospel to a lost world that needs to break away from the enemy of our souls, the devil. But the outcome of our message and the results of our labor are not on us. Praise the Lord for that, right? It's not on us. It's on us to share the gospel. No one has believed unless they've heard. Our job is to go and preach the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who come bearing the gospel and the good news. But we know that it all comes back to Christ. And, and Jesus tells us this in Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Finally, in verse 16, we see that those who hear, those sent out followers, and even us today, those people are saved because of Christ's work, not because of us. Yet those who reject those followers and continue to reject us today don't really reject us. They reject Jesus Christ. We will do well to remember this as we share the gospel with others. It's all his work. So often we can take this rejection personally. Well, you know, they, they hate me. They think that I'm this. They think I'm that. No, they, they hate Jesus. They, they hate his word. They hate his standard of perfection, of holiness. They, they, hate, they don't want to admit that they need a Savior. They don't want to admit that they need to repent and change their ways. So they really hate him. May you take peace in that, knowing that, that you are his messenger. As we come to a close, it's important that we see that we are messengers sent out by God. But as messengers, we must fully prepare the way for the Lord. 
We must share the gospel with those. We may, must pursue the will of the Lord by doing ministry the way that he commands us to, not the way we want to, not the easy way. And we must preach the word of warning from Christ to a lost and dying world. There are those that will end up in hell if we don't share the gospel. May we, may we all prepare, pursue, and preach as we glorify Christ in our lives.